So I'm introducing Caleb to you this morning, and I'm so excited to be able to do that. This is a familiar face to lots of you, but to those of you who have not met Caleb before, this is a homecoming of sorts. Caleb is certainly part of our larger Embrace family. Just like we've sent these missionary couples from Embrace to their current places of service, Caleb was with us for a season as well and is a youth pastor in Campbellsville, Kentucky now. But he comes and brings his youth group. They'll be here at the gathering tomorrow. Um, so we're still connected, and we love that. Um, but Caleb is just an incredible person. Um, getting to hear scripture from him is something that I love because I know that it dwells in him, and I know how much he loves Jesus. I think when John introduces him, he usually says he doesn't know anyone who looks more like Jesus than Caleb or some sort of high praise like that. Um, but many of you, I watched many of you greet him in the hallway this morning and just, Caleb, you know, it's so good to see you. And it is true. He is an excellent, excellent person and a very humble follower of Jesus. And so it's an honor to hear from him. It's also appropriate that he's here while John is on sabbatical. Um, when I first got here, yeah, <laughs> did you know, I was, you, were, you didn't know I was going to say this. When I first got here, John went on his first sabbatical. I'd been here three months and Caleb was here as a part-time intern. We were both seminary students. And the day after John and Laura flew to Spain, the sewage pump backed up in the boiler room. And Caleb and I handled that together, my friends. It was wild. So that's a bond like you don't find often. So it's appropriate to have him back during this sabbatical time as well. And grateful that we get to hear from the Gospel of Matthew through Caleb. So let's give him a hand and welcome him this morning. Good morning, y'all. So good to be here. Such an honor and a privilege. Um, man, when I, you know, I, when the sewage backed up, this was, the sermon wasn't about that, but it, now it is. Uh, I, I, I looked at Christina, who is a newcomer, and I thought, man, I'm going to have to do most of this. And uh, that wasn't true. Christina was an absolute sewage rock star. Um, so good morning. I'm, I'm Caleb. Uh, it, it's, it's a pleasure to be here with you today. I was uh, part of the community of Embrace uh, most actively in 2014 to 2018, though I, I think I still belong here. Um, and we've, we've talked a number of times about ministry DNA and, and uh, my, my ministry DNA, my DNA as a follower of Christ was certainly uh, deeply formed by my, by my time here. Um, and, you know, and I've, I've changed some. Uh, I, 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 several, several of you all have commented, not complimented, commented that I'm wearing a, a tucked-in shirt today, and, and I feel like I've disappointed some people. And uh, I told Miss Diane that, uh, that, I'd, that I'd gotten civilized, and, and she said, well, don't get too civilized. And so I'm going to do, do my best to follow through on that. Um, it, it's such a pleasure to, to get to, to share the Word of God with y'all. Um, and it, it's, a, it's a pleasure, it's an honor, it's a weight. Um, but my, the, the running gag is that John always gives me hard texts. And I feel like that's like, I feel like that's a gag, but it feels like a true gag that like the, the last time I was here, I had, to, I had to preach like six chapters in 1 Samuel on Absalom's revolt against David. And it's like, okay, what do I, what do, I do with that? Um, and so when, when I was asking if my, my youth group could come and, and, and partner with y'all on Monday night, uh, Christine asked if I would, would preach and, uh, I said, okay, 
I, I, and, and then I was told that y'all were in Romans. We're going to be in Romans. And I said, uh, just go ahead and tell me I'm in Romans 9 through 11. And, and Christina said, as a matter of fact, you will have Romans 9. And I said, oh my gosh. So uh, then John decided it wasn't a great idea to have five different preachers preach through Romans uh, and, and to do it beforehand, which uh, props to him for that. Um, and so I, I switched, my text switched from, from Romans 9, uh, which is, I don't know what Romans 9 means, um, to uh, the feeding of the 5,000, which is like so far on the opposite side of the spectrum in terms of difficulty of text. Like this is one of the most commonly uh, uh, known stories of Jesus. And so then that presents a different problem because I, I want to come, come with something fresh and something exciting and, and I want to impress everybody and God forgive me for all of that. Uh, because it, I, what I found is that I've been disciplined by, uh, by this text that it is not my job to, to make things new and exciting. It's, it's, my, it's not even my job to, to share my heartfelt opinions on uh, what I think should be happening with this church. Uh, it's, it's just my job to proclaim what Jesus has done. And so I've found a lot of liberty uh, just in, in obedience under this text. And, uh, and I hope that, that, that through the telling of this, this very known story, uh, that God will inspire something good in all of us today. Um, and so, as a story that is extremely well-traveled, uh, it is hard to approach it with new ears. Um, but I do, you know, as, as much as we can suspend the knowledge we already have, it, it, it will be helpful for us to try and hear this text with new ears. Um, there's, there's not a lot in it that is going to come as a surprise to you. Um, but to approach a story of Jesus anew uh, is always a challenge worth undertaking. So, uh, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 14, uh, and I'm going to begin reading our text here. Uh, when Jesus heard what had happened, he withdrew by boat privately to a solitary place. And hearing of this, the crowds followed him on foot from the towns. And when Jesus landed and saw a large crowd, he had compassion on them and healed their sick. And, and we'll pause here and... and this, this is a story that is, that, that is beginning sort of in the middle of things. The, the first lines that we read are when uh, Jesus heard what had happened. And so, so what had happened? What had happened was uh, King Herod had beheaded uh, John the Baptist, who was Jesus' cousin. Uh, he was his partner in ministry, really his mentor in ministry in a lot of ways. Uh, John was much more established as a minister and a leader than, than Jesus was at the time. John had baptized Jesus. And so uh, Jesus' close family member had just been put to death in a, in a gruesome, a very public, very political sort of way. You see, John had, had been speaking the words of God uh, around those who were very powerful. Um, and, and what Jesus knew already but, but was coming very face-to-face with is that it's often dangerous uh, to speak the words of God around the powerful. Um, there's, a, there's a well-trod uh, pattern of, uh, of powerful people putting to death those uh, who dare to speak the words of God. And, and, and for Jesus himself, the word of God incarnate, uh, perhaps this might be a good time to lie low. And so he, he goes off to a, to a place to, to pray and to grieve. And yet his his seeking after solitude, his, his praying and grieving is, is interrupted 
um, by crowds who are seeking his teaching and his healing. And, and though this is not what Jesus had intended, this is what, wasn't what he was seeking, he, 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 he can't help himself because he's God. And, and, and healing and compassion flow forth from him like streams of living water. And so when he is met by this crowd of people uh, confronting him with their needs and their desires, he cannot help but to meet them. And so we continue in the text. As evening approached, the disciples came to him and said, this is a remote place and it's already getting late. Um, And a a quick word on the language here. Uh, We've got, this is just the good NIV. I like the NIV. It's readable and it's big. It's quality translation. Uh, and this is a great translation of this chunk, but I, in another translation I, I read, it was, uh, they spoke of it as, uh, the place is desolate and the hour is late. Um, for any of you who, who dabble in Greek at all, the, the place is des- desolate, that's eremos, which is a, which is a big, that's uh, uh, a word with a lot of baggage, a lot of meaning sort of coded into it. This place is a wilderness. It's the place where People can't continue. It's the place where life can't exist on its own. Uh, The place is desolate and the hour is late. So the disciples say the place is desolate and the hour is late. So send the crowds away so they can go to the villages and buy themselves some food. The disciples are thinking through logistics. and Logistics have to be thought through. Sometimes the sewage systems backs up, and, and no matter what the sermon is, the logistics have to be thought through, and these people need food. So send them away. And Jesus replied, they do not need to go away. You give them something to eat. We have here only five loaves of bread and two fish, they answered. I'll bring them here to me, he said. And he directed the people to sit down on the grass. And taking the five loaves and the two fish and and looking up to heaven, he gave thanks and broke the loaves. And then he gave them to the disciples and the disciples gave them to the people. And they all ate and were satisfied. And the disciples picked up 12 baskets full of broken pieces that were left over. And the number of those who ate was about 5,000 men uh, in addition to women and children. And and so this is the feeding of the 5,000. Um, and it, we're, we're going to try and constrain ourselves to Matthew's version of this. This is a, a, a miracle that's recorded in all four Gospels. It's, really, it's a really important miracle. And if you're wondering where the, the little boy with his lunchbox is, that's in John's telling. And that's the, I mean, how do you, how do you skip out on the little boy with the lunchbox? But Matthew doesn't have him, so we're going we're gonna to try and stay just with Matthew's version today. Um, and and this, this miracle is so powerful and so important that it, it, it really happens twice. Uh, in a slightly altered form. If you, if you, and this isn't, for those of you with, uh, who are wondering, is this a text-critical issue? Well, Matthew puts the next feeding of the 4,000 in the next chapter of the Bible. And so if he, like, forgot that there were two feedings, they, he put them right next to each other. So it seems like there were probably two feedings. Uh, Jesus uh, is met in the wilderness with a large crowd who are seeking his help. And so he helps them. And then they need, need food, and he feeds them. And and what, what we are presented over and over with in, in the Gospels is that Jesus is the ultimate image of God. Jesus is the ultimate revelation of God. If we want to know what God is like, Jesus says, well, look at me. And so the things that Jesus does are the things that God does. And, and what we see in Jesus is the nature 
person and action of God most perfectly revealed. And so this is an essential image of who God is and what he is about. And we see in this, in this miracle, we see that God is about compassion. God is about healing. God is about providing. And, and God, Jesus is demonstrating here what we might consider indiscriminate care. Jesus makes no separation in the crowd of the worthy and the unworthy. And Jesus makes, makes it very clear in his ministry that there will be a time for separation into sheep and goats, but, but that time is not dinner time. That time is not, not a time of, of compassion and, and of God meeting needs in the wilderness. Jesus does not say, let the one who is without sin take the first bite. Jesus says, y'all are hungry. I've got food. Let me provide for you. And, and if you know, Matthew, Matthew goes to lengths to note that everyone here is fed, men, women, and children, and if, if the, the men folk who are in charge of counting and writing it down didn't consider the women and children worth counting, well, Jesus considered them worth providing a miracle or two for. And this is not just nice. You know, it, it's nice when someone provides a meal for you. It's kind. But this isn't just nice. This is messianic behavior. This is Jesus Entering into the wilderness, providing food for those who do not have food. Uh, this, this demonstration of God providing in the wilderness reminds us of God providing manna in the wilderness. Again, wilderness, the desolate place at the late hour. God providing manna in the wilderness for the ancient Israelites. See, God liberates the descendants of, of Abraham from 400 years of slavery. And then they are they're stuck sort of wondering... Uh, in the wilderness, and in their wanderings, he miraculously provides food for them. All that they needed for the day, every day. And, and at a certain point in the history, uh, you know, the Israelites get a little bit tired of the manna that God is providing. And I, I kind of get that. I'm a, I'm a variety guy. I like add-ins. I like novelty. And the Israelites grumble. They say, well, we've had, we've had this before. We've had this before. It's the same day in, day in and day out. It's man on the ground. And, you know, we appreciate it, but it would be nice to have a little meat. And then they start thinking back to Egypt. And they say, oh, for the, for the old days in Egypt when we had cucumbers and, and, and melons and meat and slavery. Um, but man, the meat, so, so right now the meat, I remember the meat much more clearly than the slavery. And, and so they, they cry out to Moses. And then Moses cries out to God, which is the right move. And God says, okay, I will, I will provide meat for you. And if you go to, if you go to uh, I, I was reading in my, in my own just reading uh, through Scripture. I was reading through Numbers. And in, in Numbers 11, uh, literally, he says, y'all are going to have so much meat, it'll be coming out of your noses. This is what, this is what God says to Moses. He says, fine, I'm going to give you, he provides quail. He says, you're going to have it coming out of your noses. And Moses says, well, hold on, God. Have you considered the logistics? You see, I've got 600,000 people. I don't know if you've been counting. I've got 600,000 people here, here behind me. If we, were to, if we were to kill all the herds and cattle in the area, if we were to take every fish out of the sea, could you really provide meat for all of us? And God says, is the arm of the Lord too short? And I love that. I love that line. That's an instructive line for me because sometimes I feel like the arm of the Lord is just a little too short to meet the needs that I've got. 
But, but Moses says to God, can you really do all of this? And God says, is the arm of the Lord too short? And then he provides. So Jesus, the incarnate, infinite God, presented with hungry, hungry crowds in the wilderness, demonstrates again divine compassion met with divine power. And, and this is the first place that I want us to camp out this morning. The, the connection of divine compassion with divine power. See, brothers and sisters, the gospel is a matter of power. The gospel is a matter of power. The gospel is not just good ideas and, 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 and healthy ethical reasoning. It is those things. It contains those things. Uh, but it is much more. The gospel is more a, power of, uh, more a matter of power and authority than of ideas or ethics. It, it's about a king and a kingdom. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4, uh, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. And the good news that Jesus came to share is that there is a king who is righteous, powerful, and loving, who has gone to hell and back for you and wants you to be part of his family. It's not about good ideas. It's about a good God. And it's nice that Jesus is nice. He's, he's righteous, and he's just, and he's loving, and he's wonderful. But, but love on its own does not put bread in mouths. It cannot provide what is needed when the wilderness comes. When we arrive at the place of desolation, when the hour seems too late, love without power is insufficient. And so that is what we are about here. That is what the gospel is about. Not just good ideas, not just compassion, but a power that girds those things, that grounds those things, that guarantees those things. Now, no amount of righteousness, even sinlessness, can feed that multitude in the wilderness, in the desolate place in that hour. And that is good news that Jesus still can feed them. Because we, we should not be naive about the track record that love has against power. There is a firm pattern throughout history of the righteous without power being slain by tyrants with power. And this is, this is what this story is about. We've seen that in this story. This is why Jesus is going out into the desolate place at the late hour in the first place. There are two kings in this story. Both of them have power. But Jesus' power is not like the power of this world. There is, there is the largest possible distinction between the two kings of this story. The first king of this story is the one that we get in that first little line when he heard what had happened. The first king is Herod. And I don't even know for sure which Herod this is. Because with the powers of the world, though they strive and they kill, they are changed out like clockwork because the power to kill is not enough to save up more power in the end. It is, it is the power to give life that Jesus says is, is more final. Stanley Hauerwas, who's, who's always a guy worth quoting when you can get away with it, he says that, that Jesus has compassion on the crowd is best understood in contrast 
to Herod's banquet. It's Herod's banquet that precipitates uh, John the Baptist being beheaded. Jesus provides food for those without food solely because they are hungry. Herod provides food for those who are not without food as a demonstration of his power. Jesus feeds the 5,000 because he has compassion for them. His feeding, therefore, is an alternative politics to the politics of envy and greed that the Herods of this world cannot avoid. King Herod exercises his power to take life. Necessary casualties in his own pursuit of greater, more secure power. King Jesus exercises his power to give life, to provide without cost, generously meeting the needs of the people who offer him zero strategic benefit. And this is crucial because we live in a world that is in need of more than good ideas. We daily, weekly face problems that cannot be solved by better ideas. We need power. We need, we need a God who is good and strong, who is both. We need a God who can actually do something. All right. Here, okay. I'm going to tell you the, mo- the most offensive way that I've ever heard this, this, this miracle preached. And this is, I, I say this at the vague risk that someone in here has once said this. Uh, and so I can get away with this because I'm leaving tomorrow. And so, if, yeah, yeah I, well, I will, I will apologize uh, if, uh, if I step on anybody's toes here. But I, I heard this when I was in, uh, I, th- I think, late elementary school, maybe middle school. We were it's in, the, in, the, in the early aughts, and, and American culture was sort of at its height of, uh, of modernity and at its height of discomfort with anything that was supposed to be miraculous or, or supernatural. We were very embarrassed that Jesus was doing miracles. We wanted Jesus to you know, to, to, to be sort of a, a nice guy scientist who had good ideas. And uh, Jesus doesn't, doesn't tend to do that very well. Um, so there's a lot of discomfort with Jesus' miracles. And, and so the, the, the story was taught like this. And you have, to, you have to bring in, we have to snag the little boy from John because he really, he really sets us up. The, so the story is this. Uh, Jesus is in the wilderness. There's all these, there's all these crowds there and uh, they need food. And well, up comes this precious little boy with his, with his little Ninja Turtle lunchbox. And he says, here, Lord, I've brought the food. And everybody smiles and they think, well, you know, if this little boy can share, maybe I can share too. And before you knew it, one person shared a piece of bread to the next person. And all of a sudden, everyone was, was sharing and, and well-fed and having a great time because of the power of one young man, inspired the multitudes. And that is the miracle that Jesus accomplishes as he comes to earth to teach us to share. And God, help us. If that is the, if that is the best that the creator of the cosmos can accomplish, then we need a better God. We need a better Messiah. He should have sent someone who can do something. We've been taught to share. We're still not very good at it. If that is all that God, if that is all the miracle that God can possess, if that is all the power that God has for you in your life, and the, pow- the, uh, the difficulties that you face, the difficulties that this community faces, it's just better ideas, nicer thoughts. That we, we need a better God. 
But the gospel is that God is a better God. Jesus was there multiplying bread because he's not just a nice guy with good ideas. He has power. He's the rightful king. He's the creator, the perfecter. And so when I come to Jesus with my problem of addiction, when I come to Jesus with my problem of, 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 of doing the wrong thing, when I come to Jesus with my problems of others who have hurt me or, or me myself hurting others, he does not say, well, have you considered better self-talk? He says, let me send my Holy Spirit to live in you. Let let me produce in you love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Let me provide healing for you. We do not worship a God of God, good ideas. We worship a good God who is powerful and mighty to make a change in your life. That's the first place that I want us to, to camp out today is that that, that the gospel is not a matter of talk, but a matter of power. And, and as, a, as a church which lives in a, in a world that, that still is uncomfortable with the miraculous, and, and as we go through moments where we are afraid to need the Lord's power, because what if he isn't powerful? Because what if he doesn't step into my life in the way that I want or the way that I need? We are, we are brought to face that difficulty. We are brought to face that tension by the reminder that the gospel is not a matter of talk. The kingdom of God is not a matter of talk. It is a matter of power. And so I want to I bring us to, to a question that I'm really excited about. And if there's, any, if there's anything that might tickle, tickle our brains a little bit in this, it is, it is this. And I, I've really enjoyed it, and I hope you will enjoy it and find it instructive too. Um, it's a question. Who does the miracle? If this is a story about power, who does the miracle? I'll, I'll take real answers if somebody wants to throw out a real answer. There's, there's a relatively obvious answer and then a, maybe a less obvious one too. Oh, man. I'm a, I'm a college professor now, y'all. I only teach one class, but I'm good at calling people. Laban, who does the miracle in this story? Also, hi, I don't know that we've met. I'm Caleb. Yeah, Jesus. Jesus, Jesus uh, is a great answer. Laban's, uh, Laban's, Laban's been, been to church before. Uh, Jesus does the miracle. Who else does the miracle? Sir. The Holy Spirit does the, mir does the miracle also because God, Jesus is walking around working with the Holy Spirit. That's exactly right. Who else does the miracle? Tanya. The disciples. This is, I've just been enjoying this. I've just been, I've just been resting in this a little bit. Jesus does the miracle, and the disciples do the miracle. And in John's version, the little boy with the lunchbox also does the miracle. God delights to express the power of the gospel, the power of the kingdom, through divine partnership. It's divinely sourced. The, power, the, the, the origin of the power is very clear. It is God. The disciples do not have the power to accomplish the task that needs accomplishing. And, 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 and this isn't God's only option. God can do stuff on his own. God doesn't, it, it's true theologically that God does not need us. But I, I'm so tempted to put an asterisk 
there because if you were to ask God, I think he would say, yeah, I, yeah, of course I need you. Because God delights to express the power of the gospel, the power of the kingdom through divine partnership. It is not God's only option, but it is the option he chooses most frequently. God delights in partnering with his followers to accomplish miraculous acts of generosity. When faced with the problem, 5,000 people in the 5,000 men plus women and children in the wilderness, they need food. This is the problem. Jesus' solution is to the problem is in order, you feed them, which is it's a difficult place to start. It's like, well, Lord, we can't. Okay, there's there's more there's more to the solution. Don't worry. Jesus' solution to the problem is you feed them, but we only have what we have. It is enough if you bring it to me, and then it is abundantly enough. This is the pattern we see in this story. This is the pattern we see throughout Scripture. This is the pattern that I have seen in lives in this room and in my own life. You feed them, but we only have what we have. It is enough if you bring it to me, and then it is abundantly enough. The pattern is frustratingly clear. On, on the one side... Jesus Jesus does not say when the disciples protest. He does not say, ye of little faith, stand back, losers, I've got this. Nor, on the other hand, does Jesus say, well, five loaves is better than nothing, and tis better to give than to receive, and in sacrificing the little you have, though it will not be sufficient to meet the need, uh, still you will find God's gladness in it. It is neither divine power only nor human power only, but Jesus chooses to interact with both. And this is, and again, this is the, the pattern is repeated. In the, in the next chapter, when Jesus feeds the 4,000, he runs the same play. He just runs it back. It's, it's, it's the, it's, yeah, it's his, it's his favorite. You play the hits. Jesus says, okay, well, you feed them. We can't feed them. We only have what we have. Give me what you have. It is enough, and then it is abundantly enough. This is the pattern by which Jesus expresses miraculous power in the world. It is the power by which God desires to interact with this world today. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the, shame the wise. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2. God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. And if you want to know what the foolish things of the world means, I invite you to look to your left. The foolish things of the world. That is you and me. If, if God were to just handle it on his own, he could. He has the power. He's, he's, he's almighty, infinite. But he, he doesn't want to. He doesn't prefer to. He prefers to work with you and me, the foolish things of the world, to shame the wise. There's a, there's a missiologist named uh, Christopher J.H. Wright, and I don't know anything at all that he's ever done except for this one quote, and so I should probably apologize to him. Um, but he's got this great line. He says, We think that God has a plan for his church in the world. Uh, and, and mostly we're wrong. It's not so much that God has a plan for his church in the world. It is that God has a church for his plan in the world. God already ha- yes, isn't that good? I'm, don't even worry about reading it. He's probably trash. I don't know. But that one line, God has a plan, in the, plan for the world. God has a plan for the world. We know this. He's the author, the creator. He does not leave the world to its own devices. He's a, he's a saver. He's a savior. It's, it's in his DNA. And so what does he have for that plan? He has the church. 
And this is, this is options A through Z. God, God says every time, we'll run it again. We run the play again. It's the church. It is the disciples who take what they have, meeting problems that, that they are not fit to meet on their own, and they bring me what they have, and then it is enough, and then it is abundantly enough. The church is God's solution to impact the world. And so God looks at you and he says, you're my solution. You're my solution. It is a a twin scandal. We throw ourselves on the promise of divine power. When we go to face problems within ourselves and without ourselves that we cannot meet with the resources we have, we shamelessly have to throw ourselves on divine power and say, Lord, good ideas will not be enough for this. I'm going to need some power. And so we are scandalized, but God also is scandalized, found to be scandalous because God, uh, uh, oh no, oh no, I just lost it. I had it. It was so good. God throws himself entirely. Found it. Don't worry. God throws himself entirely on the wager that he can work with us to accomplish the good that he wants to accomplish in the world. What scandal that God would, would, would count on you, that God would count on me to accomplish the good that he knows needs to happen in the world, and yet he does it every time. Shamelessly, God God looks at us and says, you are my solution. Why does Jesus ascend to heaven? This is a good theology question. Why does Jesus ascend to heaven? Because he wanted us to have the Holy Spirit. Because one instance, incarnate form of God walking around was enough. God really wanted to be incarnate in all of us too. That seemed more efficient to him. And, and if, we, if that seems like a bad investment for God to make, well, he doesn't seem to think so. God invests everything in partnering, us with, partnering with us to do kingdom work in a world that, is, that needs it, to bring justice, healing, peace, righteousness to a world that is, that is sorely lacking in all of them. And so, and so here's our, our call for today, our invitation for today. Join Christ in the desolate places in the late hours. Join Christ in the desolate places in the late hours. God calls us to go to the desolate places in the late hours with what we have, though it will not be enough. Saying that if you bring me what you have, it will be enough. It will be abundantly enough. And, and, and we go into the desolate places in the late hours, not hoping that he will meet us there. But we go so that we may meet him. Because where does, where does God hang out? God hangs out in the desolate places in the late hours. The, deci- the, the crowds did not, did not have Jesus come to them in desolation. They went and found Jesus already ahead of them in desolation. And you Wesleyans, as many of you are, are Wesleyans, you of all people know that. You've got provenient grace, the grace which goes ahead, the knowledge that, that wherever we venture, God already has been there and is at work. And so we can have courage to walk into places that are desolate. We can have courage to go where it looks too late to accomplish anything, anything new, anything beneficial, trusting that God already is there. God's plan for the church is this. It is manna passed around with human hands. It is 
divine power expressed through you and me. Imperfect, but, but working with perfection, working with divine power, working with God's Holy Spirit. God provides the power and he expresses that partnering with us. And when we feel hopeless in the face of desolation, in the face of the lateness of the hour, God invites us to ask, is the arm of the Lord too short? For your problem, is the arm of the Lord too short? For, for the problem of your neighborhood, is the arm of the Lord too short? For, for the problem of your family, is the arm of the Lord too short? And I, I want to inflect this in two ways. I want, I want us to consider this call both inwardly and outwardly. And outwardly is what seems most apparent, at least to me. But, but I want to begin with what is inward, uh, not because it's, it's more important, but because in some sense it, it must come first. Will, will you go and meet Christ in the desolate and late places in your own heart? Those, those places within you that, that seem like wilderness, that seem devoid of life, that seem too arid, too dry, too rocky, too filled with debris, too broken for anything new to come there, would you, would you go and meet the Lord there? It may surprise you that the Lord is already there, but that's where the Lord hangs out. He goes to the desolate places in the late hours where anyone else would say, well, nothing can grow there. It has been, it has been wrecked for too long. That is where we are most likely to find Jesus. And so we are invited today to, to go to those places within ourselves and meet the Lord where we are desolate and where the hour seems late with the promise that Christ would delight you with abundance. That Christ would delight you if you were to join him there. And, and, and this is a difficult... I know that it is hard. I have been... I have my places of desolation where I have been so fearful that the Lord could really be there, could really meet me there. And, and sometimes the Lord's healing, the Lord's, the, Lord's, the Lord's engagement does not happen all at once. Sometimes the problem is not all resolved instantly. We know this, and it is painful. Sometimes we cannot even interpret the ministry the Lord offers us as anything but more pain. And yet the promise of the gospel is, is this, that God is faithful. That, that in the highest heights and in the, in the lowest depths, in the, in, in the belly of, of the dead, that still we cannot escape his presence. That he is there in our desolation. And in our lateness, he is there. And so, for brothers and sisters, are there any desolate places in your life where Jesus is inviting you to come and meet him? This is our inward inflection. And the outward inflection is, is, is pretty simple to, to see, difficult to practice perhaps. Will you partner with the Lord in going to those places which look desolate? Will you partner with the Lord in going to those places, to those friends, uh, to, to, those, to those locations that, that it looks like they have been wronged for too long? It looks like there's, there's no way where you could imagine this A point leading to any sort of B that has life, that has love, that has peace that has God in it. Will you go there knowing that what you possess is not enough, but that God would partner with you and to take what you can offer and to make it 
enough. That, that even though it is hard to see, that Christ would delight you with abundance. Oh. Some of you, I, I know, and I want to I speak with, with care. Some of you have served long in your own inward places of desolation and in those places of desolation without. Some of you have served and ministered long and have sought the Lord long and it is hard and it is still hard and it is unresolved. And so I just want you to hear this as, as an encouragement to, to persevere because God's plan is still the same. God's plan is still the same and God's plan is salvation. It is, it is abundance. We are tempted toward hopelessness at times for ourselves and for others. And the places seem too desolate and the hour seems too late. But in faith and hope, today we proclaim the Lord's arm is not too short. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.